The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and that's on page 906 in your pew Bibles. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of God. Well, I tell you, it takes one Easter of having COVID and having to sit on your back porch while your family eats around you like I was doing this time last year to make you so thankful to gather together and have Easter service. This time last year, both Nathan and I had COVID. Nathan, Nathan and I had COVID, (laughs) and it is so good to be with you. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. One of the things that we now have the privilege of doing is coming before our God and praying. The writer of Hebrews tells us that because we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, even Jesus Christ, that we have access to the very throne room of God to come to him, to ask him for the grace and the mercy to help us in our time of need. Come with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this afternoon and we praise you. We praise you that you have given us this day where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Father, we praise you that we celebrate today what we celebrate every Sunday, that you have revealed yourself in your word and in these last days in your son Jesus, the word who became flesh. Father, we celebrate the fact that you have drawn near to us We celebrate the fact that you have made yourself known. We celebrate the fact that forgiveness is on offer, that reconciliation is possible, that new life has begun, and that you are at work. Father, we praise you for what you have done in Christ. And Lord Jesus, even as Dan pointed us in the beginning of this service, we praise you that you have risen and that you are risen, that you are seated right now at the right hand of the Father, that even now you, Holy Spirit, are making all of Christ's enemies his footstool. Lord Jesus, we praise you that we worship a king who is alive. We praise you for the hope of Easter. Father, you know every heart that has gathered here today 
And so I ask that according to your power and your might, according to your knowledge and your mercy, according to your compassion and your justice, according to your character, you would make yourself known. Father, that everything else in this service would fall away and that you would draw your children, these women and these men, into your presence, that they would pray, that their heads would be bowed at some point, and that they would speak to you. Father, we are amazed that you have done everything to reconcile us to you. And so we ask you now, would you please show us Jesus afresh? In these pages and in this story and in these verses and in these persons, would you please show us the power of the resurrection that transforms? And we, as men and women, would we please be transformed into the image of Christ with ever-increasing weightiness and matter and glory? Holy Spirit, for that to happen, you have to come and work. And so please grab a hold of us. Make your glory known. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you think they picked a great passage for resurrection, John chapter 20. But those of you who have been coming to church for a while know that we have been in the gospel of John since since Christmas, really. And this is just the beginning of the way that John talks about the resurrection. We are going to be in resurrection reality according to the book of John for the next five weeks. And the good news is I don't have to tell you everything about the resurrection, right? That's good news to you. You're thinking, have mercy. How long are we going to be here? But I want you to know this, and this is the theme of our study today of these few verses in John, that the resurrection powerfully transforms everything by grace, through faith. The resurrection powerfully transforms everything by grace through faith. This is what the gospel writer John wants to show us. He wants to show us that it is the power of the resurrection that redefines us and our reality. Remember in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 that we have referenced so many times, the purpose statement of the book of John that we are shown the signs that Jesus did, and this being the last sign, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. The resurrection. One of my friends told me that when he lived on the North Shore, one Easter Sunday, he was with some friends of his, who had not put their faith and hope in Jesus. And they sat there on Easter morning and they looked at him and they said, David, do you really believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? And he looked at them and he said, yes, I really believe it. And they laughed out of unbelief. It wasn't malicious laughter. It was just the reality of saying, you're kidding me that you base your faith on something like the resurrection. Every gospel narrative in Scripture speaks of the resurrection. Matthew gives it 20 verses. Mark gives it the fewest at eight. Luke gives it an entire chapter, but if you will, the, the second part of Luke's letter, which is Acts, is all about the work of the resurrected Jesus. But here, John gives us two entire chapters 
that we might say, let's observe the power of the resurrection. In this first section, these first 10 verses, he introduces the characters in whom we are going to observe resurrection power. You know them, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, the writer of the Gospel of John himself. Oftentimes, we think about Easter as stopping our study, going and looking at some passage out of the Bible that has to do with the resurrection, and then going back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. (laughs) But the good news is, today, we don't have to do that. This is the beginning of a few weeks of sitting and staying in the joy of the resurrection and experiencing it as it is applied to our lives. As Nathan pointed out last week, the gospel writer of John is clear to say that the cross itself is the supreme manifestation of God's glory. As one commentator wrote it this week, the resurrection doesn't reverse the cross. The resurrection doesn't say the cross never happened. That's not it at all. But rather, the resurrection enables human beings like you and me to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and to be transformed the very thing that John longs for us to have life in his name. I have a question for you. What is the turning point in your life? Think about that for a minute. It's the quote that's at the beginning of the order of worship. What is the turning point of your life, the center around which you mark the change, the transformation in your life? Was it an event 9-11, or was it a person whom you met? When I sat and considered this with some friends this week, we decided that it's usually a person. And what's interesting is that here we see the person of Jesus. And my question for us is, can we say, that the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point, the center around which our lives have changed. How might we think about life if the resurrection is that center, that turning point? This is exactly what John wants us to consider. I just want you to see that the resurrection powerfully transforms everything by grace through faith. And then I want us to ask the question, is that true in our own lives? And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm preaching to myself this week as I have sat in the reality of the resurrection. Okay, let's look at this story with Mary Magdalene, with Peter, and with John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The resurrection powerfully transforms everything because it transforms our fears and our expectations. The first character that we meet in this narrative is Mary Magdalene who ran to the grave, right? Or she walked to the grave early in the morning. 
If you want to join these with the other stories of the resurrection and the other gospels, she was not alone but went with other women and they wondered how they were going to open the grave so that they could anoint the body of Jesus with the spices. Absolutely amazing. Who is Mary Magdalene? In Luke 8, we understand that Mary Magdalene was healed by Jesus. She had been possessed of seven spirits. Jesus was for her, her deliverer, her protector, right? She was one of the women that we understand followed Jesus and cared for Jesus and his disciples out of her means. She provided for Jesus. And even at the cross, when everyone left Jesus, Mary Magdalene did not leave Jesus. She witnessed his death on the cross. She went and saw where Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus with Nicodemus. And she sat in the reality of Saturday. I read somewhere this week that we have up near 70,000 thoughts a day. Does it matter what you think? It matters completely what we think. And on that Saturday for Mary Magdalene, as she thought those thousands and thousands of thoughts, reality struck her that all of her hope was dead. All of her hope was dead. Her deliverer was gone. Her protector was gone. Her purpose was gone. And she had to learn again how to protect herself because she was alone. When I was a child, someone said something to me that has stuck with me and has shaped me more than I want to confess to you. This individual looked at me and he said, I want you to know this is what you can expect in life. Life is just one broken thing after another. He used a little bit more colorful language than broken, but this is a service after all. And so the center of my story of brokenness. Is that your expectation along with Mary Magdalene? Your fears and your expectation. Are you like Mary Magdalene that brokenness and the brokenness of this world, the fears and expectations are the center of your life? John introduces you to Mary Magdalene so that you can identify with her, but he says, hang on and pay attention because brokenness is not the center of our lives, the turning point around which our stories revolve, but rather the resurrection is. We see that Mary sees that the tomb is empty, and what does she do? But she runs. She believes that brokenness is heaped upon brokenness. Someone has stolen the body of our Lord. And then in the next verses that come after our passage, we see that she weeps. 
The resurrection just doesn't powerfully transform our fears and expectations, but it also transforms our guilt and our failure and our shame. What character in this narrative defines that for us? You know it. Peter, right? Peter, the spokesman for the disciples. The rock. The rock. Jesus names him. Petra. He's the guy with the sword in the garden, right? That's going to that's gonna stand up for Jesus. He's the guy that after three times of denying Christ, the rooster crows. He is the one who, according to the Gospel of Luke, receives the look of Jesus after his denial of Christ. He is the one who lost everything. He is the one whose guilt and failure and shame mark him. The possibility of reconciliation, the possibility of forgiveness spoken, is gone for Peter. And all of Peter's 70,000 thoughts on that silent Saturday were undergirded by the fact that all is lost. We're told that Mary Magdalene comes back and tells the disciples that Jesus' body has been taken. And we're told that Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, again, John the Baptist, that they run to the grave. you got to ask yourself, what does Peter think he's going to do? I wonder if Peter thought, I'm not going to get caught flat-footed again. This time, I'm going to be there. This time, I'm going to double down. But honestly, what we see in this passage is that Peter runs into utter confusion. He wonders what in the world happened. If Peter is any normal human being, he is driven by regret. He's driven by the loss of his role and the loss of purpose. But how is it that the resurrection powerfully transforms our fears and our expectations and even our guilt and our failure and our shame? And this is why. And we see it in the character of the disciple whom Jesus loved, John himself. Because the resurrection transforms our sense of reality by God's grace through faith. John stands in the place of the other disciples. What does it tell us? It tells us that John outran Peter. Doubtful that John is trying to brag that he beat Peter to the tomb. Most likely, John is the younger of the two and gets there. But notice that John does not go in. Peter himself is driven by his passion to enter into the tomb, and he sees the grave close. And as Peter goes in, John follows Peter and goes in as well. And John says that he sees the grave close and he sees the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head folded and laid to the side. And we're told that John came in, that he saw, and that he believed. What didn't make sense to Peter made sense to John. Why did it make sense? Well, this is a true 
crime scene, isn't it? The body of Jesus has been stolen, right? If you really want fun at the Barnes house, you can come over and watch true crime scenes with me and Mita. Why? Because Mita loves to correct the criminal. Mita loves to show you why the criminal is wrong. Mita will lay in bed after we've watched a crime scene, and she'll lay there in bed and say, you know, if I was the criminal and I was going to do that, this is what I would do. And I'm laying next to her thinking, should I be laying in this bed or should I get out and go to another bed? Mita loves this. She thinks and thinks and wonders. And here, John is making sense of what he sees. The most valuable thing in a grave robbery is the linen cloth. It is the spices wrapped up in the body. That's what is of value. It doesn't make sense that someone would steal the body of Jesus, but not his grave clothes. It doesn't make sense. It... And John goes, wait a minute. He told us that he was going to die and on the third day be raised. John, the character, the type of person who would write a gospel, puts the pieces together by grace. And through faith, we are told he simply came, saw, and believed. Just like that. And suddenly we begin to see the power of the transformation that the resurrection has on us. It is the transforming of our fears and our expectations, the transforming of our guilt and failure and shame because it transforms our sense of reality. Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection powerfully transforms everything by grace through faith. The quote at the front of your bulletin just says this by a, common, by a commentator named Leslie Newbegin, and he says this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be part of any history unless it is the center and the turning point. This is where we apply this passage to us. What is the center and the turning point of your life? Now, let's be honest. Many of us here will confess that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, right? I, we say the Apostles' Creed all the time throughout the Christian church. But when was the last time you told someone your story and you said, what really changed me is this resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ? But what Leslie Newbegin is saying is he's saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be part of any history unless it's the center and the turning point of that history and yours and mine. So what would happen if it does become the center? If it is the center, what it means is that we cannot hunker down in our place of fear and expectation of brokenness and of suffering and of death and of self-protection. We cannot hunker down there if we believe that the resurrection is the center and the reality around which all of history runs. Now look, 
This is where the preaching to myself really struck home this week. One of our friends from college brought her daughter up for a, a college trip, and this young girl called me and said, would you take me climbing? And if you know my love language, there's, there's some book about five love languages, and I can't even tell you what the five are because they miss the real one. It's the sixth one, which is climbing. And so she said, will you take me climbing? I was like, absolutely, I'll take you climbing. So I go pick up Charlotte, and she and I go to the gym. She's 16 years old. We had a blast, and, and she was into it. She liked watching it, all that stuff. And there's this second floor where you can look out over the, over the, the gym, and, and there was this woman who was climbing, and she was probably the best climber in the gym that day. And I pointed to her, and I said, yeah, Charlotte, watch her. I looked at her, and I said, one of those days, I want to do that. And she looked at me and she goes, Bradley, don't you know that you're past your prime? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I mean, knife to the heart, right? Oh, I'm past my prime. And then she saw that it wounded me and she stopped and she goes, yeah, but I, I'm not even to my prime yet. She was trying to connect with somebody who wasn't in their prime. And that didn't help either, right? <laughs> I'm like, good night. You're killing me, kid. And I sat in that, and I sat in that woundedness. And, and what does that mean is the center and the turning point around which my life turns, but the reality of death and dying. Do you see that? That when we organize our lives around something that is according to our prime, we are associating some spot with the reality of death and dying, not with the resurrection, right? Do you see that? And I was blown away by the way that the re resurrection will change the way that we fear and the expectations that we have. As we age, as we grow older, do you believe that your life is coming to an end? Or do you believe that your life is just beginning? That this death that we will experience physically is simply a veil that separates us from a transformed life that if we could see it, Lewis says that we would be tempted to worship each other. Those beings that we are being transformed into. You see, it would strip us away of all of this expectation that life is here and now. The Apostle Paul says it to the Philippians, and he prays and he says, everything in my life is set for this. And how does he say it? He says that I may know Him, Christ, and the power of His resurrection, and that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Family, do we rejoice in sharing in the sufferings of Christ? My friend's daughter was killed in Nashville. He and I were RUF campus ministers together. And this last week, at his daughter's eulogy, he stood up and proclaimed, evil does not have the last word. The resurrection powerfully transforms everything. 
It transforms our fears and our expectations. But it also means that we can't settle into guilt and failure and shame. Do not look down. Look up, church. If the resurrection is real, it means that we cannot settle in guilt and failure and shame. Listen, if we don't believe the resurrection, our guilt and failure and shame is going to do a few things to us. It's either going to make us hard-hearted people. We're going to say, that thing against which I'm guilty really doesn't matter, and our hearts are going to become hard, and when our hearts harden, we can't love well. Because hard hearts don't love well. Or we try to deny our guilt and failure and shame, and we become performers. Again, preaching to myself all week long. You'll guess the next one if you know me. Or we become people pleasers. Just trying to make someone else pleased with us. How do we know if this is happening to us? I actually think it's pretty hard to detect. I mean, it's like talking to a fish about water, right? It, we're in it so much. How do we really know? If I am honest with you, this is how I know it in my own life. I see in me a deep difficulty to forgive others. If the resurrection is real, I want to ask you, Christian, do you believe you are forgiven? Human being, do you believe that forgiveness is on offer with the gospel? Because that's what Peter wants us to believe. Peter, the very one who ran to that tomb that day. Listen to how he says it in his letter. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is Peter the failure. Peter the denier. Peter the one driven by guilt. In fact, if the resurrection powerfully transforms everything, we will be propelled to run toward the brokenness because we believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in him is life. Mita sent me another video this week. It was a video of an Anderson Cooper clip off of CNN in which there was a man being interviewed that's a friend of ours, a musician by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman. Some of you may know him. It just happens to be the case that he was Benjamin's very first babysitter. 
he and his wife, Mary Beth, were very kind and looked at me and Mita, who were dying as newlyweds, and said, let us come and babysit Benjamin. And they even paid us to go out for the evening. It was so kind. Anderson Cooper was interviewing Stephen Curtis Chapman because the head of the Covenant School was shot. Her name was Catherine Kuntz. And Anderson Cooper looked at Stephen Curtis Chapman and he said, you know, the initial police reports are saying that it is most likely that Catherine Kuntz was moving toward the shooter when she was killed. And Stephen Curtis Chapman said through tears, it wouldn't surprise me because that's how she moved toward us when our own son hit and killed his own sister. She, Catherine Kuntz, moved toward us. Anderson Cooper then turned and said, Stephen, I heard you talking to the, per to the producer before our clip, and, and you said something to him. You said that you didn't believe that this was the end of her story. You said that you believed that her story continued. Anderson Cooper said, Stephen, tell me about that. I like that idea. And Stephen Curtis Chapman responded to Anderson Cooper and said, Anderson, that is not wishful thinking that her story isn't over. I know it. And in fact, that's what fueled her life. And that's what fuels our life and our hope as well. Church, are you fueled by the resurrection of Jesus? John has introduced us to the resurrection without even showing us Jesus yet. Have you seen that? Isn't that amazing? And it's because he realizes that we human beings need to have the resurrection transform everything in our lives. And that's what he intends to do in these next two chapters. Do you need to be transformed by the resurrection? Hang on. Stay tuned. Pay attention. Easter is not buttoning up the resurrection. Easter is putting it front and center so that we can ask the point, is it the resurrection of Jesus that is the center and the turning point of all of our lives? That question leads us to this table. Let's go there together. Please pray with me.